Well, welcome those who were away on, on trips this summer. It's good to see the church full again. Maybe you missed a couple of weeks and you came back and somebody took your designated spot. <laughs> Sorry. Just, maybe you need a new perspective. You need to sit in different seats. So, If you missed the last couple of weeks, uh, Nathan Heiner brought us the word. And uh, we're finishing up the 14th chapter of Mark. In fact, let's go there now. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane contemplating the cross and enduring the wrath of God poured out against sin. Jesus carrying the sins of humanity, all the sins ever committed, and all that will ever be committed by the elect. And having the wrath of God poured out completely on Him. Him being treated the way we deserved to be treated. And we get His righteousness in return. So God treats His own Son the way we deserve to be treated as rebels And then He treats us the way Jesus deserves to be treated. It's a wonderful uh, switcheroo. You know, it's like a bait and switch, only a good one. Amen. And then last week, uh, Nathan explored the more uh, personal side, the more application side of things for Jesus to be let down by his closest friends. And remember, he's, he's not just fully God, he's fully human. And the pain that must have been to have his friends abandon him in his greatest hour of need. And Nathan reminded us that at some point in life, you'll hurt somebody too, and people will hurt you. It's what we do to each other. It's what it means to be human and fallen human beings. And yet, a lot of times, the hurt that we feel from other people, if we're honest, maybe wasn't their fault. Maybe we had unrealistic expectations. And then we say we're hurt, or he introduced us to this term that's been going around for a number of years called church hurt. A lot of people saying, I don't, I don't go to church anymore because I got hurt by the church. And unless the building collapsed on you, Um, you weren't hurt by the church building. Somebody in the church uh, either violated your trust or um, and maybe it was self-imposed church hurt. And it takes a lot of courage and humility to look at your hurt and say, am I the source of my own hurt? You know, if other people are the source of your hurt all the time, you're going to get hurt a lot. Part of growing and maturing in Christ is learning not to be so easily offended. And even more so, realizing in your own fallenness, like Nathan said, you may be the source of a lot of people's hurt. And you may not even know you're the source. And it may not even be fair that you're being accused of being the source. And so, the antidote is humility and grace. Be patient with people, like Nathan said. Christ so patient with his disciples, even though they couldn't even stay awake long enough to pray with Jesus in his greatest hour of need. 
forget for a second that under the pressure of uh, under the pressure of death and imprisonment by the Romans, just in the garden when they had that chance to be alone with Jesus, they they couldn't even stay awake to be with him while he was struggling so much that he was sweating drops of blood. Where were his friends? We all wonder that at times, I think we all do, that if things changed here in this country and it became illegal to, to be Christians and at gunpoint or sword point, would you deny Jesus? Many, many have. Um, many have. And yet repented and, and given another chance. Um, did, did better. Um, it's not the final test of faith is will you, will you sh- stand firm in the face of death? Although many martyrs have been able to. There was a uh, controversy in the Russian church years ago that those who not so much denied the faith but hid, many in the church felt that they had sinned and fallen away from Christ. And then when the curtain came down, these people wanted to come back to church. And the people who stayed steadfast under great persecution didn't know what to do with these people. I think we're going to see today from the life of Peter that denying Christ in the face of great possible suffering and persecution isn't the last word. It doesn't have to be the last word. The title of this morning's sermon is God on Trial, Peter's Denial. It's hard for a preacher to figure out what portion of Scripture to preach at once. We call a chunk of Scripture a pericope. It looks like the word pericope. But like epitome, it looks like epitome. It's a pericope, and you're like... Do I do a paragraph? Do I do two paragraphs? How much of a section do you preach? And I I really got the impression that Mark wanted Jesus' trial to be put next to Peter's denial. Not because they rhyme. (laughs) Although it's kind of nice, right? But because we're so quick to look at the religious leaders and the evil... How could they have God and human flesh in front of them and treat him that way? And it's easy to point at them and go, oh, those awful, terrible people. It's easy to listen to the news and read about all the terrible things going on in the world, to read about ISIS and and just say, oh, it's almost not even human. And yet we're those who read and trust the Bible, and the Bible reveals to us that, no, that is human. That is fallen human nature. That is what lies in all of our unredeemed flesh, and, but not for the grace of God. And that even though as believers we're redeemed and we have this new nature and we sing about the power that is in us, the power of God, the power of the blood of the Lamb, that we're still incarcerated in this fallen flesh. 
and to take heed lest ye fall. To be suspicious of your own residual sin nature. To not be arrogant about your sanctification and how much progress you think you may have made. Because put under the right circumstances, and God will put you under those circumstances, whatever it takes to flush out that residual sin nature so you can repent of it and work on it and leave it at the foot of the cross because that is how sanctification happens. Let's read the text. Then we'll look at the trial and finish with Peter's denial. Mark fourteen fifty three. Thank you, Nathan, for handling verses 51 and 52. <laughs> they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself with the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Well, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
and he began to weep. And he began to weep. We read in Luke's Gospel that uh, Peter looked up and made eye contact with Jesus on the third denial. And then the rooster crows. God on trial. Question mark. God on trial? Why would God need to be on trial? And who could try Him? What would we use as the standard by which to try Him? He is the standard. Who is God's judge? Who would be fit for a jury? What charges could be brought against God? His Word is the standard we use by which to judge what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. And yet, here's God, the second person of the Trinity, on trial by the very nation He birthed. He gave life to the universe by speaking and created this planet especially to inhabit human life made in the image of God. And He eventually chose a special nation and gave them a law, a wonderful law, a law like no other civilization had ever seen, a law designed to glorify the one true God. A nation that prided itself on keeping the law, obeying the law, teaching the law. They loved the law so much they added to the law laws of their own. And took great pride in their ability to follow the law. They created a legal system like none other. We'll talk about it more later. And yet, here's the irony. God Himself shows up with the authority to tell them, you are missing the mark. You need to repent. You need to turn. You are far from God. And you are leading the people astray. The system was set up for you to lead people to God through knowing and obeying His Word. And you are doing the opposite. While thinking you are keeping the law perfectly in that you are pointing people to God through the law. And so really God came and put His own nation on trial. But He said the first time He came was not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But He'll return. And He'll be the judge. And so let's not miss that point because this is the grand climax of the Bible. We're we're headed to the cross. God's act of redemption is the high point of, of the whole Bible. It all pointed to Jesus and His sacrifice and His resurrection. And so we're here now. We're here in the text. We're getting to the climax in the Grand cosmic irony is that man is attempting to put God on trial. 
How wrong is that? And before we all just sit here like, how could they be so foolish? How could they be so wicked? The whole point of today's sermon will be that all of us in our fallenness put God on trial. We don't even know we're doing it most of the time. And yet, if we are those who say we love God and love His Word and we trust every letter of it, then we will have to accept what the Word reveals about ourselves. We think in our fallenness that we know better than God. Like I said, not in every context, but there is a circumstance. There is an issue There is an idol in your life. I don't know what it is. But really, when you boil idols down, there's not many left in the room. Whether it's material comfort or the respect of men, the praises of men, there really aren't that many. They just fall into some broad categories. And things that you see other people tempted by, you say, oh, I would... How petty, how... Oh, just you wait. There's something. And praise God that He puts us in situations where that something comes to the surface. So we'll know how, what to turn from. So we'll know what stands in the way between us and our God. Listen to this scripture from Romans 11. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. How unsearchable are His judgments. We have to understand that about God. He knows things that we don't know. He understands things that we'll never fully understand. He even knows you and I better than we know ourselves. It's It's a gift from Him that we have consciousness and we can think and we have this internal monologue going on. It's how we think. We talk in our minds. We have our private thoughts. I'm glad that our thoughts aren't projected in thought bubbles above our heads. If you've ever been around someone whose filter apparatus has been damaged, it's no fun. They need a a whole shoe store because they keep running out of shoes to stick in their mouth. They stick their foot in their mouth every time they get, get the chance. And yet, when we're in a wonderful, trusting relationship with another human being, when we get married, and part of that growth in the marriage process is little by little letting the other person into your private conversation. You float an idea out there and you go, are they going to think it's stupid? Are they going to, you know? And, and that's how our relationships grow. God has private thoughts and He didn't need to share them with us, but He has. Isn't that wonderful? God lets us in on His personal diary, so to speak. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. It doesn't mean I have the mind of Christ. It means we have the mind of Christ. This is God's thoughts. And they're not 
philosophical musings. Not like we do when we float theories out there. All his theories are laws. They're, they're true. They're right. They're the standard. Nobody can come along and say, oh, I don't think so, God. You know, nice try. But you're missing part of the picture. We can't say that. We know we can't say that, and yet when it comes to our personal well-being and our personal happiness, we are very tempted to say, but God, you don't understand. You don't understand. Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? An Old Testament quote. Right? Who does God go to when he needs counsel? None of us. He goes to himself. They have inter-Trinitarian dialogue. And they're all in agreement. It's not like the son said, well, I don't think you understand, Dad. It's just, it doesn't work that way there. They're all omniscient. They know everything. We get so caught up in our horizontal relationships and we like to find people that we fancy ourselves smarter than. And so that makes us feel very wise and like we have all the answers. And sometimes somebody smarter comes along and we despise them. Oh, I, I wish I didn't even know you were around. Now it bugs me to know there's somebody like you out here. And that was the religious leaders with Jesus. God came in human flesh, the perfect one, the one who knew the Scriptures better than they knew, answered all their questions and then gave them questions they couldn't answer. And instead of humbling themselves, they said, this guy's got to go. Oh, we can't have him around. And so they plotted to put God to death, to put Jesus to death. And as believers, we would say, no, I don't want to put God to death. But any time we entertain thoughts of, I know God's Word says this, but I don't want it to say that. I need God to go away, but He won't go away. Where, could you, where, where are you going to go where there's no God? He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And so in our minds, we conjure up a fantasy world. And when your life runs into problems, and we find this in the counseling office when people come in, you need good Christian people to take God's Word and give you a reality check. Say, This is the way the world is. This is who God is. This is who He's made you to be. Here is the source of your trouble, your anxiety, your frustration, your anger. You want things that you can't have. And you need to trust God that if you had those things, you wouldn't be happy anyways. You'd be miserable, even more miserable. And so it's a battle of the wills. Who are we going to listen to? God's will or our own? Our own fallen will. Jesus said, Father, not my will be done, but yours. And he didn't have a fallen will. And yet in his humanity, he said, I really don't want to drink this cup. It's going to be horrific, but I trust you, Father. 
For the joy set before me after the cross comes the resurrection and the glory. And so he went to the cross first and foremost for his father to glorify his, his father. Secondly, because of his great love for humanity. Paul says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God doesn't owe anyone anything. We find ourselves saying, I was really good at obeying this week, God, so you, you owe me. Nobody says that, but when you look at people's hearts as they talk to you, you realize you've been keeping score and you feel God owes you one here. I was so good in this area, I should get a little bit of latitude over here. Really? You want a little attitude to, latitude to sin? You want that from God? You want God to say, okay, go ahead and sin a little because you think that sin's going to bring you happiness. You don't want a God like that. Praise God, that's not what He's like. He says, child, no. You don't want to go there. It won't deliver what it's promising. Romans 9.14, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there, uh, there is no injustice with, with God, is there? May it never be. He's getting to a point in, in the book of Romans where he's anticipating that his hearers are going to say, Well, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not just. And Paul can anticipate that because he's human too and he knows what his fallen flesh is thinking too. And so he anticipates the answer the Romans are going to hear, the church in Rome. Cuts them off at the pass. I know what you're thinking. Hey, that's not fair. What, is there any unfairness with God? No. We see that in a counseling room a lot. So are you saying God made a mistake? Well, no. I know I'm not supposed to say that. Well, everything in you is communicating to me that you think God made a mistake. And you know you can't say God made mistakes. About 30 years ago, there was a popular counseling method, unfortunately. I like Dr. Dobson, but he was one of the main proponents, and that was to temporarily forgive God. Even though God doesn't need forgiveness, and we know He doesn't need forgiveness, if it helps you get past the hurdle, I don't think it helps. I don't think planting any seeds of untruth is helpful to anybody. You may be able to say in your own mind, yeah, I know that's not true, but it'll help get me over the hurdle. It won't. As soon as you latch on to that we need to forgive God for the family He put us in or the marriage He put us in or the disease He allowed us to have, now God is unjust or unfair or doesn't know what He's doing. Is that a God you can trust and worship? No. And so Paul says, is there any injustice with God? No, may it never be. Don't even think about it. What would the universe be like if there was a God who sometimes was unjust? I don't know my Muslim theology that well, but I believe that in the Quran that God sometimes lies. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. I do remember reading that and hearing that somewhere. And it makes you say, well, no wonder they act the way they act. If you don't know that you can trust God, 
You don't know how you can please Him. You don't know if you're saved. No source of atonement. So you just kind of make up your own rules and hope God's pleased with with them. Paul says, On the contrary, who are you, O man? Well, that just puts us right back in our place. O man. O created one. O like a vapor. Our life. You know, O man born. Your mother had to feed you and diaper you and change you and Oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? I love this uh, counseling technique Pastor Andy taught me where he'll have you come in and kind of list all the things um, you think are wrong in your life. And by the time he's done, he's got them in two columns. And one column is just uh, just the way things are. Just your personality. And the other column is sin. And guess what column it is that people are most upset with? Just the way things are, not the sin. They're not that concerned about their sin. They're mad because God didn't make me handsomer or prettier or smarter or more popular. I can't play the guitar and keep beat on the drum and then put it down and go play the piano. What's up with that? Why does Wesley get those gifts? That's not fair. I just talk. Everybody can talk. And we get mad at God and judge Him by the, for the way He created us. Are we not judging Him in that moment? Oh, no, I would never judge God. Yes, you would, and I would too. It is part of what it means to be fallen man. Where did this come from? Let's go back to Genesis 3. It'll be up on the board. You're familiar with it. We always end up going back there, right? It's kind of a important touchstone verse. This is where it all went wrong. If this book is all about God redeeming humanity, then we need to know where it all went wrong. And this whole idea of putting God on trial is really an attack on His Word. His his Word is the representation of His person and His will. Right? What do we say? I'm a man of my word. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is the serpent tempting Eve. Now, it's not what God said, right? He said you can eat of any tree except one. So, Satan tried with an attack on the inerrancy of God's word. And so, we are those that affirm that this is an inerrant word. That the words can be trusted. These are the words God spoke in. And that God has preserved His Word through the ages. It's also an attack on the perspicuity of God's Word. I love that word because it means something that's clear and easy to understand, and that word is not clear and easy to understand. 
God's word is perspicuous. <laughs> Which means it's understandable. When I tell my children, go clean your room, they understand that that's not some kind of cryptic code for something else like go play the Wii. It means go clean your room. It's perspicuous. And yet Satan was tempting man and woman here to say, huh, maybe I don't know what God said. But Eve passes this test and she says, no, God said we may eat of any tree in the garden, but of the one in the middle of the garden, we shall not eat of that one. And she even adds, and we shouldn't even touch it, which could be a whole sermon on not adding to the word of God. I don't know if we can go there with that scripture, but perhaps her husband told her, look, don't even go near it. But the way she answered was good. So Satan attacked the infallibility of the Scripture. Okay, maybe God did say that, but you know what? You won't really die. So God's Word is inerrant and perspicuous, but maybe we can't trust that it knows what it's talking about. Maybe it was meant for an ancient culture, right? We've heard that one. That was for long ago. Those don't apply today, you know, because, because humanity is so different now than it was then. We're, we're more sophisticated now. We're able to kill each other faster. We have bigger weapons. And then Satan attacked the sufficiency of Scripture. And the evangelical church is always battling on the inerrancy issue. And in fact, next year's Shepherds Conference is going to be an inerrancy summit. Evangelical leaders from all over the world are going to come. And even though back 40 years ago, the evangelical community wrote a statement called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, and it's a good statement, even some of the professors and scholars that we like are starting to chip away at inerrancy again. Where, what do we have without an inerrant Bible? Where do you go from there? What's left? And it's clearly the attack that the enemy has tried since the beginning. But where most of us are going to find the temptation is on the sufficiency issue. We're going to answer the way Eve did and say, no, he said, you can have any tree, just don't, you know, we, we know God's word. We go to Bible studies, lots of Bible studies. We love Bible studies and sermons. But this attack on sufficiency is, okay, well, of course there's God's word, but you need something else. You need something else. Another source of revelation. Satan is trying to give us a way to creep our own wisdom and understanding in with the Bible. See, God knows when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be open and you'll know good and evil like God. Oh, if I know good and evil, then I don't need God to tell me what's good and evil. I can decide what's best for me and what's going to make me happiest. And you see our, our, our society, our corrupt society, chasing after the very things that are going to bring death and destruction and heartbreak. And they think these are the wonderful things. 
And we, we, we would, might say, well, I understand the Bible's inerrant and I, it's perspicuous or whatever the pastor said. It's clear. It's infallible. I trust it and it's sufficient. I don't need anything else. End of story. Let's go home. And we would be setting ourselves up for a great fall. Because that very Bible that's inerrant, perspicuous, infallible, and sufficient is telling us that this residual sin nature we have will fall for these old tricks. Again, when the, in the right circumstances, when we want something bad enough, we're susceptible to caving in. This is what happened to Peter. None of us spent three years living with Jesus. I mean, we live with Him in a different way. He does reside and dwell within us as believers. We have His Word. Yet we're talking about this special way the disciples got to spend three years with Jesus. That's how you learned in the rabbinical system. You lived with your teacher. Because all good teachers know that more is caught than taught often. And so you want to train your children to be righteous? Live righteously around them. And teach them righteousness from God's Word. So Jesus said, in Mark fourteen twenty seven, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Okay, let's, let's take a step back here and realize God just told a man, you will do this. It's not you probably will or you might. You will. This is the Word incarnate speaking. And Peter has already failed many times. He's got a reputation for getting uh, ahead of himself for not being patient, for speaking when he shouldn't. And yet Peter says, no, that's one thing I won't do. And just to double down here, Jesus quotes Scripture. No, it's prophesied. It's going to happen. It is going to happen. Remember we were talking about those Mark and sandwiches where Mark you know, makes that sandwich where... He's got something that looks just like something else, the two pieces of bread, and then there's meat in the middle. When he says this to Peter, and then he says, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice, how many times did Peter have to be awakened in the garden? Three times. There's one of your Mark and sandwiches. What's in the middle of that sandwich? Jesus praying asking the Father for strength and that His will be done and not His own. That's what Peter should have been doing. 
my Lord, my Master, my Rabbi, the one that Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, has just told me you are going to deny me tonight. He should have been on his knees praying. Or at least saying, well, then what's going to happen after? You know, Is there anything I can do to stop it? Can you help me, Jesus? I don't want to deny you. No, he just says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. What's in between that denial, sleeping in the garden, and the actual denial, Jesus' trial? You have humanity, you have the religious leaders putting God on trial and judging him. But let's not miss the fact that Peter has already put God on trial and said, you're wrong about me. You're wrong about me. I know me better than you know me. I would never do that. And to prove it, he pulled out his sword in the garden and attacked Malchus. See, I'll die for you in the face of this Roman cohort. And sadly, for a guy who wanted the respect of men more than anything else, in a culture of honor and shame, maybe the most shameful thing that could happen to a man in this culture would be to be schooled by a woman, child, slave. The lowest of the low of this culture confronted Peter and he crumbled. His honor and respect meant everything to him and he just crumbled. It wasn't even with a sword at his neck. It wasn't recant and we'll let you live. It was just a slave girl We find out in John's Gospel that she was in the family of Malchus, the slave who Peter uh, nicked his ear with the sword. Very sad. And the crushing weight of that realization hit Peter and he wept. Wept bitterly. It's not the end of the story. We'll finish that part of the story next week. More irony here is that the law of God was designed to bring glory to God. Moses uh, said these words, Deuteronomy 4, before they entered the land. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Much of our law code here in America was modeled after Israel's law code. And wasn't for a time this the shining city on a hill? I mean, compared to the rest of the world, it still is. 
a place where you can come and get a fair trial. It's not a given in other countries. A place where the rule of law is supposed to keep our society together, and it has. Only with the rule of law, rule of law can, you, can you feel the safety and freedom to raise a family and to have a business and know that someone's not going to take it away from you tomorrow. That there's property rights. That certain steps have to be taken in order for you to be charged with a crime and, and convicted. It's not the way it works in other countries. And Israel had this kind of law system and it was supposed to bring glory to God and attract people to the God of Israel. A little background on their legal system. They would set up a Sanhedrin, which just means sitting together, of 23 men, of people of good reputation, like the way we choose elders. 23, an odd number, so that the vote is never a tie. The great Sanhedrin, which is the one that's in view here, was made up of 70 men plus the high priest. So you'd have 24 chief priests, 24 elders, 24 scribes. What does that add up to? I'm the math guy here. Oh, we're like past 70 now, huh? So oh, it's 72 uh, minus 1. So it wasn't exactly 24, 24, and 24. And then the high priest didn't, wasn't supposed to have a vote. He was supposed to oversee the proceedings. Jesus was brought to the inner courtyard of a man named Annas, A-N-N-A-S. He was once the high priest of Israel, but Rome said, you're no longer the high priest. So he would just have his sons be the high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest when Jesus is brought in. Caiaphas is Annas's, he was out of sons, son-in-law. So really, Annas was more like a mob boss than a high priest. He was filthy rich from this whole corrupt system he had set up. They used to call the the temple area when Jesus cleansed the temple, they called it the Bazaar of Annas. You know, it, it was a marketplace. The whole system was set up for Annas and his family to stay rich. And really, it was Annas who was calling the shots behind the scenes. So in the middle of the night, they brought Jesus to Annas first. And you can see that part recorded in Luke. Here in Mark, it's in front of Caiaphas. What happens is he goes to Annas first. Annas sends him to Caiaphas for another trial. Caiaphas sends him to Pilate because they know they don't have the authority to kill Jesus. Pilate doesn't want the responsibility and sends him to Herod. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, and Pilate sends him back to Caiaphas. It's like hot potato. It's three trials in front of the Druze and three trials in front of the Gentiles. And then finally, Pilate goes in front of the people and says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And the people say, crucify him. So in essence, it's like seven trials. And none of them were fair trials. 
Here's some of the things built into Israel's legal system that was supposed to bring glory to God and protect against the fact that man is fallen. So how do you judge another man if you're a man knowing you have a fallen nature? You stick close to God's law and then you set up a system with safeguards, checks and balances, right? The way our legal system is. Again, our legal system is very much based off this one. So first of all, a trial had to be public. This trial was in the middle of the night between 12 a.m. and 3. The trial must conclude before sundown. They wouldn't even start a trial late in the afternoon knowing they probably wouldn't finish before sundown and they didn't want to rush to judgment. Again, this trial was in the middle of the night. Trials were not to occur on the Sabbath or holy festivals like the Passover. This trial is happening between Thursday and Friday. Thursday, remember, is the day that the northern Jews would celebrate Passover. Friday was the day the southern Jews would celebrate Passover. Jesus had celebrated the Passover with his disciples, instituted the new covenant, and now he's being tried right in the middle of the high holy week. There had to be a prosecutor and a defender, just like our legal system. Does Jesus have a defense attorney here? Not that he needs one. But legally, he was supposed to have one. And there was supposed to be a main prosecutor, and Annas was not allowed to be the prosecutor. Charges need to be brought before the trial starts, so you need to know what you're being tried for. They just wanted to kill Jesus, and it even says in the text they were looking for things to charge him with. How would you like to be tried that way? What am I being tried for? We don't know yet, but we know it's going to be the death penalty. There had to be two or three witnesses. You're familiar with that. The Bible says that often, two or three witnesses. One witness could lie. One witness could maybe see things he didn't really see. Two or three witnesses. And they couldn't get two or three witnesses to be consistent. They couldn't get their stories to corroborate In fact, we read in Luke that they were going out and bribing witnesses to come in. Now, people don't want to give false testimony because the rule was that whoever gives false testimony, if you found out whatever the punishment was going to be for the person you gave false testimony against, would be exacted on you. So if it was a death penalty trial, you would be stoned to death for giving false testimony. Could you imagine if our legal system was that way? You'd get a lot more truth-telling. 24 hours needed to be passed before a guilty verdict of a death penalty is carried out. Jesus is going to be executed uh, just in a few hours. He'll finally give up his last breath at 3 o'clock p.m. The 24 hours was to give time for more witnesses to come forward and that they wouldn't rush to judgment before they kill anyone. It was also the rule that witnesses, whatever witnesses gave the key testimony had to throw the first stones during the execution phase. That'll get you thinking before you rush to give testimony. Finally, the judges were supposed to fast before the trial, and junior judges voted first so they wouldn't be influenced by the senior officials of the Sanhedrin. 
So it was all designed in order to, to best you could in human terms to give a fair trial and keeping in mind that man is fallible. And so safeguard upon safeguard, checks and balances built into the system. We could take a little bit of that into our personal life and be very careful before we accuse anyone of anything. Right? Don't rush to judgment. You don't have all the facts. If it's something that's not your business, just trust that God's got someone else taking care of it. If it is your business and you are involved, then your goal should always be repentance and restoration, not dragging another person down. We try not to act rashly here the church, especially on the elder board. I remember when I was candidating, it took them forever. I was ready to pack up and move, and they were, they were still deliberating. And now I see the wisdom in that. Don't rush into anything big. Take, take your time. Know that you're fallible. And so getting a lot of people's wisdom, that doesn't mean gossip. Gossip's different than getting wisdom. When you're on your eighth phone call saying, I want to run a situation by you, then you've probably crossed the line. Right? I'm going to skip uh, Dave to the slides that say the Sanhedrin prided themselves in keeping God's word until the word came in the flesh. So let's wrap up here. Here are the people who said, we are those who know God's law. We love God's law. We keep it fastidiously. We teach people. We want to bring glory and honor to God. And yet their hearts were far from God. God himself shows up, points out their heirs to them, and they say, this man needs to die. We, we need to get rid of him. And so that's the obvious. Oh, how could they do that? And yet that's an indictment on all of humanity. And we see Peter, the individual. Peter is more the guy that we can relate to than the Sanhedrin. We sing every Sunday some song that says, I will follow you. I will obey you. I commit myself to you. Angie read that beautiful prayer that really encapsulated what our attitude should be. And yet... The Bible is telling us that we have to be suspicious of our own wills because of that fallen nature that still is hanging around. Don't delude yourself like Peter into thinking, oh, I won't fall. Take heed lest ye fall. And really what I'd like to ask you this morning as you're leaving is... Last slide, Dave. What is it that you desire so much that you would be tempted to judge God by disregarding His Word in order to get what you want? You might have to ask other people. We get so blind to these things, we need other people to show us. Judas wanted worldly affluence and money. He ended up with 30 pieces of silver and no seat at the table. 
You know, after the Sanhedrin paid him off, they were like, go away. We don't want you around here. I mean, even these low-life hypocrites are like, we don't want him here. He just sold out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a condemnation on that they understand their own fallenness. We don't want a betrayer around us. I'm sure everyone on that Sanhedrin, except for a few that we find out, like Nicodemus, did repent and turn. I think all of them would have done what Judas did at one point or another, but it's easier to go, ooh, yeah, we may be bad, but we're not that bad. Peter wanted worldly respect, and as we pointed out, he folded in front of a slave girl. How would you like that in an honor-shame society? Oh, you're the guy that, de- that denied God in front of a slave girl. You know, Mark, Mark was Peter's mentor. I wonder how much, uh, as Mark was recording Scripture, how many times Peter told this story. Again, if this was a made-up religion, then people wouldn't be writing these things about themselves. It doesn't make any of the apostles look good. So, where are you hurting? Where are you angry? Where are you frustrated? That's a, a symptom that there's something that you want more than Jesus. And it goes like this. You want something so bad because you think it'll bring you happiness And you convince yourself you deserve it, and deserving turns to demands, and demands turn to entitlement, which turns to anger and disappointment when the people around you aren't giving you what you want to be happy. Odds are, if we interviewed Judas before he betrayed Jesus, he'd say, Jesus hurt me. He promised me all these things and then he didn't deliver. No, he never promised you those things. You had that. That was your idea. He promised you persecution. (laughs) He promised you the kingdom of God, not a kingdom here on earth. The difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter loved Jesus and repented. Judas felt bad about what he did. He had remorse, but not the remorse that leads to repentance. Judas could care less about Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. And when the Lord reveals to you that you, in essence, have denied Him for some creature comfort, for some earthly pleasure, for some petty title or position of authority, when you make eye contact with Jesus like Peter did and realize you've denied him, what will your response be? You going to double down? You going to double down and say, "No, I deserve this thing." Or you can are you going to say, "I can't believe I would sell out my savior that way." If he says, "This is what's best for me. I trust him. He died for me." He knows everything. Repent of that idol. Turn to Jesus and realize 
He's the one thing that will bring you happiness and joy like nothing else. I hope you get a chance to work on this this week. Let me pray to dismiss all of us. Father God, You are the beautiful one, the perfect one. Why do we insist on going our own way? Why do we insist on thinking we know better? Why do we chase after beads and trinkets and fleeting pleasures when we can have the eternal joy of knowing the God of the universe who loves our souls and cares for us enough to die for us? Thank You, Jesus, that You restore us when we humble ourselves. What a friend we have in You. I love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.